Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Beyond Thought Philosophy Podcast. My name is Joseph Theodore, your host. Thank you so much for being here with me today. And I do hope you enjoy the conversation at hand, which will be about Kundalini awakening and psychosis. This is a very interesting topic. I have definitely spoken about Kundalini before on the channel. Maybe about a year ago I have a video. Uh, I'm not really sure when I did that. But uh, yeah, I um, have talked in length, you know, even in my everyday life, you know, I've spoken publicly on Kundalini and the origins of it and how that has infiltrated the New Age movement and how, yeah, it's, um, you know, not something that's unreal to the degree in which people claim it to be happening to them. But in my experience, a lot of people who claim to have these kundalini awakenings or they can keep rising the kundalini from the base of their spine, because we'll get into some of the, you know, some history on it, I guess. You know, for anyone who's coming here who doesn't really know much about kundalini, um, you know, I'll go into a little bit of backstory. I'll speak, you know, obviously from my stream of consciousness on the topic. And um, yeah, and then we'll go into some other notes that I have in regards to, you know, symptoms, what people say they experience. You know, I'll talk a little bit of actually Carl Jung spoke on this and wrote on this a little bit. You know, there's a psychological component to this, which I want to talk about in regards to, you know, the psych, the psychosis of it all, how it can affect the mind. Or is this all in the mind? Is this just something that, you know, kind of started off a long, long time ago in India as a part of just, you know, more and more meditation techniques and practices and, um, you know, and how did this really come to be? Because when you have to, you know, and this is like no offense to, you know, Indian culture or whatever, but, you know, they're the masters of meditation. You know, they are the masters. You know, this is where it kind of really began is India. And there's a million billion different types of ways people practice their religion and their practices, whatever that is, meditations, yogas. And, um, and Kundalini, you know, has, has originated, you know, over there. So here's the thing. I'm not saying that everyone that has ever practiced meditation or, you know, takes Indian routes, because again, there's very, very, you know, I do believe that there's very, unex there's unexplainable things that occur during meditation, especially if you have a serious dedicated practice or if you come from a culture that dates back thousands of years, you know, I'm not doubting that there are energetic phenomena that occur within the body. 
My thing is, is from doing all of the practicing exploration that I've done in my life and I've explored yogas and, you know, of course, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying I've done it all. I haven't experimented and practiced all of these things. But I myself have felt things energetically within my body. You know, certain types of breath work. I've definitely have experienced strange things, but not to the degree of like transformation to, you know, other, you know, I feel like I've transformed in, in other ways in my life that are much more secular as far as, you know, these um, psychological and spiritual revelations within myself. But I'm not claiming that anybody's experience with Kundalini, with certain types of yogas and meditations from, you know, Hindu culture. I'm not not claiming that it's fake or anything like that. My whole thing is the more we understand the mind, the more we understand the nature of consciousness, the more we understand psychology, the more we understand how our environments and our genetics and the, the cultures that we're grown up in really, really do play a role in what all of this really means. Now, before I begin, I would like to just speak directly to my YouTube viewers and my viewers or my, not viewers, well, yeah, viewers, I mean, you're listening to this, but you're maybe watching the screen, I don't know. But uh, for anyone on YouTube or streaming on Spotify or Apple or whatever, please know that this episode is um, an early access episode, meaning this episode has been available on Patreon probably for a week before you are getting to listen to this now. So since the dawn of this podcast, which literally has only been about a week or so, I'm trying my best to record a lot of episodes that I have already in the bank, the reservoir. I really want to get these episodes out so we can start building, you know, a nice library, you know, right off the bat for, you know, all of you beautiful listeners out there. But, um, but yeah, I do have a patron and for the longest time, Beyond Thought has been just a YouTube channel where you saw my face and I would sit down and talk to you guys about certain topics but, um, and you know, and, and starting a patron was always like kind of my intention so the channel can get support because every creator and teacher or anyone who wants to, you know, pursue, you know, stuff, you know, Patreon is kind of like a natural route. And, you know, I feel like this is a uh, important step for Beyond Thought. And I've been trying to figure out the best way to go about Patreon memberships to be fair and to provide the most content and the most value. So if you are on YouTube and you are on a streaming service, just know that this episode and all of my episodes moving forward will be on Patreon early, very, very early. And I'll probably constantly upload episodes, you know, like there could be five or six episodes already on Patreon and they're going to slowly roll out, you know, every week, you know, maybe every five days or so on YouTube, on the streaming service. So if you become a Patreon member, you will be able to get episodes as soon as I'm done recording them and editing them, they're going on Patreon. 
and then they might come to YouTube like a week later. So, you know, just to keep in mind. I'll be mentioning that consistently as I record episodes for all of you. Now, one more thing before we get into the Kundalini conversation that I would like to say. I do get comments now that are, I think, coming from a good place where they're trying to help me maybe run a smoother show. Meaning people have, some people, not many, because I mean, I've gotten over 100 plus subscribers since the launch of this podcast last week. So obviously there are people who enjoy what I'm doing. But I do understand that there are some people who think that I should be getting into the conversation quicker. You know, instead of wasting 10 minutes of just talking or, you know, maybe just talking off, you know, talking from my heart, speaking from my stream of consciousness about whatever, you know, and definitely setting the stage for what we're going to talk about. But some people I think are giving constructive criticism, you know, on maybe trying to help me get to the point or to be more informative quicker. But the truth of the matter is, is that I am learning as I go here, number one. Number two, I'm not going to just be some kind of educational podcast here because I do understand that there are podcasts that speak on philosophy and, you know, some of the high concepts we'll talk about. And then definitely I'm going to get into topics that are very critical of certain things in this world and spirituality and philosophy and psychology and culture and society because some of my greatest... uh, inspirations have not only taught spirituality or taught meditation or taught the nature of mind and consciousness, but also we're not afraid to speak out on things in this world and somehow get people to wake up and then, yeah, come back to wanting to be interested in some philosophical topics and, um, you know, seeing what the root of where these concepts have come from to help people you know, expand their own mind and to be, you know, individualistic and authentic in what they, or how they view the world. And I think also someone said that I, by setting up some of the things I might say, that I'm already setting a negative tone. Well, here's the thing. I've never been someone to hold back if I felt something was wrong or if I needed to speak out on something. Like fundamentalist religion. I've spoken out on that before, maybe not in the depths that I maybe am planning on doing in certain episodes moving forward. But if anyone thinks that I'm going to be negative, that's on you because I'm just going to be speaking more truthfully now in many ways. But again, I'm not some tyrant now or anything stupid like that. But I just feel like there's a freedom now that I'm feeling in myself that I haven't felt in a long time doing this work on the channel. And um, I'm going to be coming in hot with some things. So to close, I'm doing my best. I'm going to do my best to jump into these conversations quicker. I will open up the podcast episodes with a nice hello. How's everybody doing? Maybe, you know, say how I'm feeling today. I'll 
definitely open with, you know, what we're going to talk about, just like I did in this episode, you know, I immediately started talking about what we're going to say today. I can't help if anyone thinks some of my topics will be negative now, which they're not. It's just, they're going to be me speaking my truth on things. And then offering a new compassionate perspective potentially on what, you know, what we're talking about. Like if I speak out on fundamentalist religion of any kind specifically, then I will offer my perspective on what is probably the most compassionate, humanistic way of going about something. So anyway, let's, um, let's stop there with my little rant in the beginning there. I know some of you like when I just talk and to myself. And again, there are full, there are other YouTube channels and channels out there, podcasts that, you know, are very educational. I'm not an academic, you know, I'm an author. I've always been a writer. I've always been an, an artist. I've been on this path of spirituality, philosophical, um, you know, interest pretty much my whole life. So I do have a well of knowledge that's not considered institutionalized. So yeah, this will be a podcast of both education, sure, but also me being me. And if you like it, cool. If you don't like it, spare yourself the comment and move on. Or leave the comment. Because no matter who leaves a comment or hits a dislike button or whatever, you're still helping the algorithm help my channel. I, I wonder if people actually know that. But uh, anyway. Kundalini. I know many people in my everyday life. I'm not, I don't really know them anymore. But I've met tons of people who claim they've awakened their kundalini. And to be quite honest, most of them either didn't come from a stable background, psychologically speaking, or they went through a massive trauma and somehow found spirituality or a yoga class or whatever. So right off the bat, my skepticism with kundalini stuff especially in the West. And maybe I'll keep this conversation more narrow to the West. Because once all this stuff started coming over here in the 60s and 70s, there were, this was like a breeding ground for yoga and meditation and, you know, mixing that in with drugs and, you know, people claiming to have these profound experiences, which now as more, as science evolves, we start to, we can understand that, when you get blasted with like dopamine and serotonin, there's these ecstatic feelings in the body that all are chemical and all understandable from a clinical perspective. Now, I'm not someone who is a clinical guy. Like I believe that science and clinical knowledge and um, progress is extremely important, but I'm also extremely aware of the phenomena of things that we would call mystical, magical, magical 
spiritual, which is why I don't completely denounce spiritual and divine revelation from our past, because I do feel that there are elements of some kind of intuition into the deeper meanings of reality and the source. And I do believe that our body is made up of, I mean, we are energy beings, you know, everything is energy. I mean, Einstein proved that, and of course, you know, that's not really rocket science or uncommon knowledge now. We are energetic beings. Everything is energy. And I think people need to realize that that this doesn't mean that every time you have a meditation or any time that someone was guiding you in the direction of this concept of kundalini, that it's not always this kundalini thing, that it could be something else, something natural. And then I could already hear people who would defend kundalini until their death. Well, kundalini can be natural. I mean, this is part of our divine blueprint. This is part of our divine feminine energy. And I'll read like, you know, I'll read some things that I have here to kind of get into like what people are saying, you know, kundalini actually is. I'm not going to go into the whole history of this. Um, but I'm going to talk on a few things specifically on what Kundalini is. But before I do that, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm not entirely convinced that everyone who claims to have Kundalini awakenings is actually having Kundalini awakenings. I think it is extremely plausible that if you are aware of the concept of anything, like in your, especially like something like Kundalini, if you're aware that there's this coil at the base of your spine and you start doing a special meditation and you have a special teacher and they start talking to you and teaching you how to do this. Focus on the base of your spine, breathing techniques, breathe up and down. Yes, of course. Like your mind is already putting its awareness in parts of your body and it's going to create this energetic feeling and sensation within the body. And I think I said this in another episode, but the mind is so powerful, guys. The mind is everything. As far as our lived experience is concerned and the perception of our experience, period, full stop. So, for example, like I said in another episode, if you had a pain in your knee, and you keep thinking about the pain in your knee, your mind and awareness is going to your knee and it will actually make the pain worse. But let's say you, that pain in your knee was, you know, didn't go away, it's there, but then some emergency occurred in your house. Like someone was trying to break into your house. Your mind and your awareness and your concentration goes immediately to what's going on in my house. Is someone trying to break in? What is that sound? That's aggressive. Oh my God, I think I just heard a window break. And guess what? Throughout that entire process, you don't you, your knee is not hurting anymore. And yeah, we can say that, that you're, maybe your adrenaline kicks in, all that stuff, but 
let's let's not even use like a break-in analogy. Anything. What if someone starts talking to you across the room and like really asking a question of you and you start answering that question and you really get into a conversation with that person? Your mind and your awareness is focused on that. It's not focused on your pain anymore. Let's that conversation ends. And maybe you're sitting back down in a chair and you're, you know, back to reading your book. And guess what? Your mind can start thinking about your knee again. And the pain will throb because you're thinking about it. Now, I'm not saying all pain or all experiences within the body or are only because we're dwelling upon them or obsessing over them or thinking about them, but it can have a lot to do with especially things like kundalini awakenings or any sort of spiritual mystical experience that's not drug-induced because drug-induced things are a whole different conversation it's a whole different animal and but again it affects chemicals within the brain and does that do these effects open up other forms of uh does it widen the gap of consciousness and what we're able to perceive as humans maybe Now, the question is, is if, is if kundalini is real, by doing these exercises, even if you're being taught and told exactly how to do them and what the result will be, is some of the things people experience on a psychological level or on a bliss level, is it, is it valid? Like, are you really opening up faculties of extra-dimensional perception? Are you really inviting in quote-unquote, something divine or raising the divine something within you, this divine feminine energy, which is supposed to be the creative life force, um, you know, within ourselves, which is also, you know, part of the outside world. So my whole thing is, is mind. How powerful is your mind in all this? Of course, the question mark is open for me. Is there any truth to, you know, you really exploding into the cosmos, into divine heavenly states, if you believe in that stuff, all because of some concept that has been brought to the West. But again, probably has a lot of validity in ancient Hinduism and Hinduism generally speaking. But what is it really? Because there's even some Hindu and Indian masters of our past that I'm not convinced we're prophet-like or sage-like. I just think when you're dealing with a culture where people are honored at times or we're honored at times for being a martyr or being a yogi on the side of the road and it still goes on today, it's just part of their culture. It's part of the way they've come to be. This is where Buddha came from too. Buddha was an Indian. Um, but again, I am tempted to contemplate and maybe even argue against some of their psychological traumas and just the trauma of their entire history period full stop as well. So I do not know where the line is drawn between mystical spiritual claims of this kundalini life force or any sort of high-level samadhi practices or psychological imprinting and psychological convincing upon one person who is being taught this is what it is this is what you'll experience this is how you do it and 
you know, the truth behind it all is it could just be a natural chemical process just based upon doing breath work and breathing that you're really not activating anything divine. You're just letting your body get full of oxygen and you're really experiencing these heightened senses and these serotonin and dopamine blasts along with the knowledge you already have gained from your teacher and from books and from scriptures. And you put that all together and you convince yourself this is what's happening. And then people, especially in the West, who are not prepared for some of these things, they still live their little Western lives and they deal with their Western problems and traumas and psychological issues. And then you give them concepts such as like non-duality or any sort of high spiritual concept. And all of a sudden their worldview starts getting crushed and shattered. They start questioning what is real, what is unreal. And trust me, I've had awakenings like this too, in a way, through meditation, Zen meditation, Zazen. You know, being a strict materialist and someone who, you know, was in tune with some religious ideals, have everything has now been shattered based upon my investigations into consciousness, meditation, and understanding more about physics and stuff. All right, so let me read some of my notes here. In Hinduism, Kundalini is a form of divine feminine energy or Shakti, believed to be located at the base of the spine. It is an important concept in the Shaiva Tantra, where it is believed to be a force of power associated with the divine feminine or the formless aspect of the goddess. This, this energy in the body, when cultivated and awakened through tantric, tantric practice, is believed to lead to spiritual liberation. Kundalini is associated with Pavarati, the supreme being in Shaktiism, and with the goddesses Baryavi and Kubjika. The term, along with practices associated with it, was adopted into Hatha Yoga in the 9th, 9th century. It has since then been adopted in other forms of Hinduism as well as modern spirituality and New Age thought. Kundalini awakenings are said to occur by a variety of methods. Many systems of yoga focus on awakening Kundalini through meditation, breathwork, the practice of asana, and the chanting of mantras. Kundalini yoga is influenced by Shaktiism and Tantra schools of Hinduism. It derives its name from its focus upon the awakening of Kundalini energy through regular practice of mantra, tantra, yantra, asanas, and meditation. When Kundalini awaken, when Kundalini is awakened spontaneously or without guidance, it can lead to kundalini syndrome, which sometimes presents as psychosis, or it's all psychosis, maybe. So that's a little bit of the origin, kind of, for anyone who's never really understood it. But...
And there's just so many ways to discuss mystical topics like this. And I'm sure many of you might even know people, or maybe you yourself, who claim to have some of this stuff happen to you. Um, but again, do they have any medical issues that people aren't aware of? Do they have a medical issue no one's aware of? Doing breath work actually is not for everybody. And a lot of teachers don't warn certain types of people of that. Like people who have uh, nervous system disorders, people who already have mental health problems and stuff, or even like, you know, uh, seizure disorders, epilepsy. This stuff can trigger massive damage to the body. And also some of these symptoms and some of these awakenings can, or some of these symptoms of the psychosis or the exacerbation of you know, psychosis or physical pains and manifestations in the body, which, yeah, if you're not, if you don't have a healthy system, biologically speaking, and you do breath work, in some of the ways I see a lot of these modern yoga people in the United States, for example, you know, offering breath work classes and what they do, you can totally mess somebody's body up. Breathing in and out aggressively. Yes, it creates a high, you know, with people that can handle it. It creates a high. But there's a biological and chemical answer to that now. It's not just some divine influence. So it's a very interesting conversation to always have this kundalini conversation as is all things that claim to bring about a religious experience or revelation Now, I know I haven't mentioned anything about chakras yet, but I'm somewhat of a believer in the concept of what chakras are. Um, I've studied hands-on healing before with certain people way back in the day. Like, I do believe we have centers all over our body that have, you know, some sort of influence to our overall health. But again, I feel the mind-body connection is extremely important. And this is where super, super duper woo-woo spiritual people want to completely neglect. They don't want to talk about necessarily the power of the mind and how, you know, mundane experiences in life and how we associate even the mystical experience. It all is, it is all filtered through our minds which can be easily deceived. I mean, someone can tell you that you have a disease. A doctor can tell you, hey, listen, you have cancer. But then you're like, I need to go, but then you go to another doctor in a month. But that whole month 
they someone told you you had cancer, you you will literally you will feel a whole different way. And then imagine when someone tells you you don't have cancer in a month. Like, no, that doctor was wrong. You're totally fine. All your tests are clear. You immediately feel better. Like you might feel like like you can go run a marathon. That's because you're my and but the whole time you never had cancer. The whole time you never did. But your body was shutting down. Your body was feeling heavy. Your body, this is the power of the mind. So who's to say for all these years that, yeah, of course, breath work can create these ecstatic states of aliveness, creates surges of dopamine and serotonin. And listen, guys, I can have a whole other conversation on if just being a human being is something divine and mystical, like the very nature of being in existence, period, full stop, is divine in itself. We can have that conversation, but what I'm talking about here is these influences from others that tell our psychological minds that this is what it is when you feel this. And oh my God, you have this mystical divine thing arising in you. And now that you're the most special person in the world and you can, you know, talk to the galactic federations and, you know, like all that, that rabbit hole of, you know, of mystical psychicness i guess is the word. i don't know what word i'm searching for because so many people who say they awaken their kundalini are all of a sudden mediums and psychics so let's talk about invoking kundalini experiences let me read some things i have here Yoga gurus consider that kundalini can be awakened, awakened by shaktipat, spiritual transmission by a guru teacher, that's in parentheses for me, or by spiritual practice such as yoga and meditation. There are two broad approaches to kundalini awakening, active and passive. The active approach involves systematic physical exercises and techniques of concentration, visualization, pranayama, breath practice, meditation under the guidance of a competent teacher, these techniques come from any of the main branches of yoga and some forms of yoga, such as Kaira yoga and Kundalini yoga. So to actively awaken this Kundalini energy requires practice, visualization, which is fantasy of your own mind, which again, visualization is very, very important. It does help psychologically speaking, but it does not mean that you're actually in the presence of some divine being. It just means you're creating that in your mind. Um, now the passive approach is instead of path of surrender, where one lets go of all the impediments to the awakening rather than try to actively awaken Kundalini. A chief part of this passive approach is Shaktipat, where one individual's Kundalini is awakened by another who already has the experience. So the one special person has to activate the specialness within somebody else. Shaktipat only raises kundalini temporarily, but gives the student an experience to use as a basis. See, I can't buy this entirely because the, psycholog the psychology of the individual, the student, is already anticipating exactly what to feel and where to feel it. If I told you right now, focus your mind on your third eye. Just focus, close your eyes, 
put your awareness to the middle of your forehead and think only of that spot. Your mind is activating, your awareness is being activated with that particular part of your body. Now, some would argue you're just, you're raising the divine energy within you to that particular spot. But again, technically speaking, if you're focusing on your third eye, you should have some psychic visions right now. Something magical should happen to you. When in reality, every time I do that, one, it just proves to me that the power of your mind and the power of your uh, innate energetics within your biology has the power to manifest a sensation there. Because I'm not negating the, mysteri the, mis the mystery and the phenomena of the mind and how amazing it is and how the mind itself could be something wild and divine. But what I'm saying is, is there's not some like mysterious, there, there might, this is not some mysterious snake within my body that's going up to my third eye right now. It's my mind telling, <laughs> it's, my, it's my mind telling myself, quote unquote, the little self to do that. Now, this video isn't, or this podcast, is, is not an entire deep dive into Kundalini Awakening. I just wanted to make some points and offer some perspectives on the delusion, potentially, of this all, or the validity of it, and for you to decide. I'm skeptical, as I'm skeptical of many things. But again, I've said before in other shows or other episodes that I do have a I do have a belief in a source. I do have a belief in a source. I wouldn't say creator because that kind of, you know, invokes this uh, tribal, you know, you know, tribal view of what God could be, meaning like there's this control and domain over all of us where my experience or my perspective is that the source animates everything including our existence and being and it's up to us to act out a will of the source so i'm not like some staunch nihilist atheist type of guy it's just when we're talking about these spiritual mystical sensations in the body and these stories that go along with it and these revelations into divine dimensions and all this stuff um i question it especially on the level of kundalini Here's another little blurb I wrote down. The experience of kundalini awakening can happen when one is either prepared or unprepared. According to Hindu tradition, in order to be able to integrate the spiritual energy, a period of careful purification and strengthening of the body and nervous system is usually required beforehand. Okay. Yoga and Tantra purpose propose that kundalini can be awakened by a guru, but body and spirit must be prepared by yogic austerities breath control, physical exercise, things I already said a little bit. So in Hindu tradition, they do put an emphasis on like, hey, your physical body needs to be ready for this. 
Um, but again, they're psychologically preparing you for what this is, what this is. And then people who have sudden Kundalini awakenings, and again, I know a few people who've had literal psychotic breakdowns and they've gone into epileptic seizures and they've been rushed to the hospital and they've, you know, dissociated and then only later to find out that like, you know, and then somehow they always find out about this Kundalini thing. And yeah, it, it maybe helps them get out of, you know, um, because here's the thing, spirituality, spiritual practices, spiritual philosophies do help people that are at a low point and it helps them kind of see a bigger picture of reality. And maybe they do put in certain practices that are healthy for them. But that doesn't mean, oh my God, this all started because I had some divine Kundalini thing. All right, so let me read a little bit more of what I have here. According to yogis, there are two nerve currents in the spinal column called Pranyala and Aida, and a hollow canal called the Shumina, running through the spinal cord. At the lower end of the hollow canal is what yogis call the lotus of the Kundalini. They describe it as a triangular in a form in which, in the symbolic language of the yogis, there is a power to call the Kundalini a power called the kundalini, and you can coil it up your spine. When the kundalini awakens, it tries to force a passage through this hollow canal. And as it rises step by step, as if, as it were, layer after layer of the mind becomes open and all the different visions and wonderful powers come to the yogi. When it reaches the brain, the yogi is perfectly detached from the body and mind. The soul finds itself free. Now, I can easily describe some of that from Zazen meditation. Except in Zazen, you are not focusing on any particular part of your body except the, your posture. And when you relax enough and kind of zone out enough, because in Zazen, your eyes are open a little bit because you're not trying to relax and get sleepy or you're not focusing on mindfulness or anything or loving kindness or you know any sort of vipassana zazen is just about literally going beyond thought getting to that place of stillness and when it says the yogi is perfectly detached from the body and mind the soul finds itself free in zazen we don't really talk about the soul that much but um this whole detachment of the body and mind is extremely important. And yes, there is a bliss to that. There is a bliss from freeing your mind from having no distraction. And then add in breath work, which is biologically proven to make your chemical levels in your body, you know, blow through the roof and offer you profound refreshness and um, clarity. And then again, what really gets me is the psychological component where the knowledge is already present that there is this sensation that will rise from your spine. So if you do this enough time, eventually you will focus enough on your spine and eventually you will focus enough on 
the energy or the sensation of going up your spine. And eventually you will feel the sensation going up and down your body. Just like if I tell you to focus on your forehead, you will feel the throbbing there. Now let's talk about some modern Western significance sort of in this in regards to psychology and Carl Jung and a few other viewpoints here with that. Western awareness of Kundalini was strengthened by the interest of Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst Carl Jung. Jung's seminar on Kundalini Yoga presented to the Psychological Club in Zurich in 1932 was widely regarded as a milestone in the psychological understanding of Eastern thought and of the symbolic transformations of inner experience. Kundalini Yoga presented Jung with a model for the developmental phases of higher consciousness, and he interpreted its symbols in terms of the process of individuation with sensitivity towards a new generation's interest in alternative religions and psychological exploration. In the introduction to Jung's book, The Psychology of Kundalini Yoga, Sonyu Samadasani puts forth the emergence of depth psychology was historically paralleled by, paralleled by the transit, translation and widespread dissemination of the texts in yoga. For the depths, psychology sought to liberate themselves from the stullif studifying limitations of Western thought to develop maps of inner experience grounded in the transformative potential of therapeutic practices. A similar alignment of theory and practice seemed to be embodied in the yogic texts that moreover have had developed independently of the bindings of Western thought. Further, the initiatory structure adopted by institutions of psychotherapy brought its social organization into proximity with that of yoga, hence an opportunity for a new form of comparative psychology opened up. So there's a lot there. And I think, you know, when I was taking notes on this, you know, I think what is what has been said there a little bit is how how these concepts and texts, when they came to the, when they came to the West and these practices came to the West, how much of the pre the prior knowledge of what this is all about affects the psychology, therefore affects the result of the experience itself. So psychology became really interested in this, um, and I think that really started happening more more as the '60s and '70s came. Because that's when all the hippie yippies started, um, you know, really getting wild with the Eastern thought and practices and drugs and all the rest. And here's a section I wrote called More Recent Viewpoints. The American writer William Bullman began to con conduct an international survey of out-of-body experiences in 1969 in order to gather information about symptoms, sounds, vibrations, and other phenomena that commonly occur at the time of an out-of-body experience. His primary interest was to compare the findings with reports made by yogis 
who have referred to similar phenomena, such as the vibrational state, as components of their kundalini-related spiritual experience. Then I have a quote from this American writer, William. There are numerous reports of full kundalini experiences culminating with a transcendental out-of-body state of consciousness. In fact, many people consider this experience to be the ultimate path to enlightenment. I definitely would disagree there. The basic premise is to encourage the flow of kundalini energy up the spine and toward the top of the head, the crown chakra, thus projecting your awareness into the higher heavenly dimensions of the universe. The result is an indescribable expansion of consciousness into spiritual realms beyond form and thought. Now, again, this is, this is all, this cannot be claimed as truth, guys. This cannot be claimed as truth. Because all you need is, again, someone guiding you into a visualization technique of floating around in the cosmos, or what do you think heaven looks like, or if there are heavenly dimensions, what does your imagination think that is? And that's doing it, and then thus doing enough of these spiritual practices and people telling you that this is something that will occur if you do them right. Then one day, enough oxygen gets flooded through your body and blows off the amount of chemical, you know, your dopamine and serotonin goes wild. And then these things become real to the individual. Now, again, guys, for whoever's still listening, <laughs> um, I'm not someone who's anti-mystical experience, quote-unquote mystical, even though I think <clears throat> things that are mystical actually have their place among natural law. We're just not familiar with them yet. Like psychedelics, I feel like there is a um, there is a heavy... For me, at least, there's a heavy importance on studying that. I'm just saying that invoking spiritual experiences, I feel, almost always stems from a psychological place. Now, the question is, is these psychological places, can they be deemed to be Again, I don't want to say real, but if we really understand the nature of mind and study the mind in psychology, we realize how impermanent the mind is and thoughts. And this is stuff that I've focused a lot of my work on is, you know, the impermanence of life, you know, a lot of what Buddha taught. And, um, and Buddha was very against, you know, becoming obsessed with these ecstatic states and these spiritual experiences. And he was very much about you know, ethical behavior, behavior, being moral, but also, you know, how the root of all suffering is really our attachment to things. And that includes ideas, that includes, you know, things that will, will exacerbate pleasure and desire. And how the mind can play so many tricks on us and be deceived so easily. But again, I'm not going to discount, you know, anything. You know, I, I may sound like I'm being critical and parts of me am, but 
Again, I'm just trying to, you know, share some education here, share some insight. Sound off in the comments if you would like to let me know what you think. Um, yeah, the mind is just so powerful. The mind is just so powerful. And that's the thing, you know, when it says like heavenly dimensions or stuff like that, I've talked about this before, guys. Um, and in early Buddhism and their cosmology, it's not that certain realms of like hell or heaven or whatever the case may not, may, you know, it's not that they don't exist. I'm not someone who's just a stiff arm of that. I'm just saying we don't know for sure. And I think we have to get real about how everything is created by our minds, powered and animated by consciousness. These are the only truths of reality as we know it and how powerful they are and animating some of these imaginative ideas. But because we can create and imagine and do things in our human life with our human minds, and the transcendence of consciousness being a thing, who's to say there aren't real heavenly <clears throat> dimensions or hell dimensions or whatever the case may be that the mind is capable of experiencing? And yeah, is that true or not true? People's subjective experiences are very important to keep in mind, but at the same time, in the era of investigations into what is true and science, you know, we can start weeding out certain things and we could start leaving the door open for other things and then we can completely claim we just don't know in other things. And yes, do I think some diagnoses of mental health can seriously just be you know, a spiritual sickness. Yeah, I do believe that there is some validity to that too. I think some people, you know, I, I think some people are misdiagnosed all the time with things. And usually guiding someone into not mystical territory, but, you know, maybe a grounded meditation practice and give them some practical grounded you know, spiritual philosophies that aren't all woo-woo and crazy, like awakening your kundalini and breath work. Because again, depending on your psychological state, your biological makeup, a lot of these things can really like kill you or mess you up even more or cause seizures or further psychotic episodes and whatever the case may be. Boy, this kundalini thing, um, people need not people need to not be afraid of speaking out against like every single person who thinks that that's what's going on, especially with the flood of new age um, craziness on this topic. And I hope people come to this video from the new age. You know, who, who were into it. And maybe they can hear some of this stuff out, maybe think twice. Because again, I'm not negating the phenomena and the profoundness of our reality and beyond what reality may be. But what I'm saying is, is that something as specific as this in the modern age we live in, and yes, even some of my intuitions towards ancient India, I don't think everybody was psychologically sound during the inceptions of a lot of this stuff. 
And this is coming from someone who's had wild experiences with meditation, with breathing techniques, which I don't do anymore because they are not healthy for me personally. Um, you know, feelings of getting faint and dizzy and all this other shit that I didn't want to deal with. And again, my own spiritual practice of Zazen is good enough for me and my insights into deeper uh, questions and contemplations on the nature of reality are suited based upon that practice. And I think it's a more grounded and healthy practice. I also think this Kundalini movement, um, especially in the West, has promoted narcissism and ego issues uh, at an all-time high. And then other people, you know, who believe that that's what happened to them, um, again, came from very tra tra traumatizing backgrounds or something happened to them. And get, getting on this path of meditation and even kundalini techniques or whatever the case may be, um, the people I've known personally who I respect, uh, who I differ with in some thought, they at least are not trying to activate everybody's kundalini and, you know, making them, uh, the, giving them the potential risk of, you know, furthering issues. So kundalini yoga and hatha yoga isn't all about just awakening your kundalini and, hey, you may or may not survive this. You know, there's actual practical good reasons for those those meditations and stuff. But yeah, one last thing I want to read from my notes, guys, is more on psychology and it's a little bit more on Carl Jung and some of the things he said. And this is, and after I read all this is where I will end the episode. <clears throat> According to Carl Jung, the concept of Kundalini has for us only one use. That is, to describe our own experience of the unconscious. Jung used the Kundalini system symbolically as a means of understanding the dynamic movement between conscious and unconscious processes. According to Sham Dasani, Jung claimed that the symbolism of Kundalini Yoga suggested that the bizarre systemology that patients at time presented actually resulted from the awakening of the Kundalini. He argued that knowledge of such symbolism enabled much that would otherwise be seen as the meaningless byproducts of a disease process to be understood as meaningful symbolic processes and explicated the often peculiar physical localizations of symptoms. The popularization of Eastern spiritual practices, practices has been associated with psychological problems in the West. This is a separate note from Jung. I'll repeat that. The popularization of Eastern spiritual practices has been associated with psychological problems in the West. That's a fact. Psychiatric literature notes that, the, that since the influx of Eastern spiritual practice and the rising popularity of meditation during the 60s, many have experienced a variety of psychological difficulties either while engaged in intensive spiritual practice or spontaneously. And by spontaneously, I'm guessing, especially during the time period of the 60s, people were experimenting with a lot of drugs. And again, what if they read a book on kundalini yoga? Maybe they met some little guru at a music festival or whatever. 
and boom, while they were high enough on acid, they were contemplating Kundalini and then they started shaking on the ground. When one, they could have been having a medical episode or two, psychologically speaking, their mind was that powerful to create this overload within the nervous system. Continuing on from this reading, among the psychological difficulties associated with intensive spiritual practice, we find, quote-unquote, kundalini awakening, a complex physio-psycho-spiritual transformative process described in the yogic traditions. Researchers in the fields of transpersonal psychology and near-death studies have described a complex pattern of sensory, motor, mental, and affective symptoms symptoms associated with the concept of kundalini sometimes called the kundalini syndrome the difference between spiritual emergency associated with kundalini awakening may be viewed as an acute psychotic episode by psychiatrists who are not conversant with the culture And then it goes on for, then I go on for a minute, just, you know, I don't want to read the rest of this, you know, by biological altercations by yogic techniques may be used to warn people against such reactions. So, you know, again, it's just sort of warning people like, hey, this is sort of what the deal is. This is where this, this is what may happen, may, may not happen. Um, and then again, based upon the person's own history, medically and psychologically, that may, you know, that kind of. that kind of dictates, you know, the outcome of an experience for that particular person. So as we can see, there's a lot of differing perspectives on this Kundalini stuff. Some psychologists are open to what this could be, but a lot of them are really trying to break down the history of you know, the culture it comes from, the mental health and psychology of the individual who is taking part in this practice. Again, the power of the mind and how that can override practicality and logic and reason. But at the same time, you know, people who are open-minded, and I know Carl Jung was open-minded about a lot, you know, there's still this door that's kind of open, like, okay, well, the human experience itself, even from an atheist perspective, is something profound. It's a profound thing. We can, I always say this all the time, life itself is a mystical experience. And the fact that we can maybe breathe a certain way that makes these dopamine um, and serotonin blasts happen in our brain just like a drug could or whatever, we can easily claim that a certain drug is a spiritual gift from God or a spiritual gift from the divine. So again, it really, it really just all depends on your philosophy of life. Because someone can say the very act of breathing is a spiritual experience. That the breath itself is God's source or something. 
But this idea of a snake coiled at the spine, and yes, I'm aware of how symbolic the snake is in almost every single culture around the world. But again, I think there's a human evolution component to certain things all around the world that early humans have you know, been fascinated by. So of course, every culture has like kind of a reason why the serpent or the snake is so important. It represents something to the human story that's very profound. But is there a spiritual component to all of the human story? Is there an influence to the human um, condition from something that may be claimed to be mystical or otherworldly or divine? That stuff we're not going to really know. But we should be open to it. We should hear people out in conversation in regards to, you know, how they view reality. Because I take a very non-dual view of this world. You know, I investigate a lot of other philosophies, though, like existentialism and, you know, uh, phenomenology and um, the nature of our mind, consciousness. And I don't take a very materialistic view of the world. But here's the thing. All philosophies... Materialism, idealism, existentialism, phenomenal, phenomenology. They all are part of the human story. It's just everyone has been arguing for hundreds and thousands of years, which is the ultimate true one. When in reality, it's a mix of everything. Because everyone's trying to figure out reality, especially deep thinkers and philosophers you know, spiritual, you know, practitioners. But specifically to conclude this episode on Kundalini Awakening, there's a lot to think about. But there are some very concrete claims here that I'm not convinced of. And the root of where this all comes from, I respect but also we don't know for sure where the mind states of these particular individuals that have created these meditations and all the way, way back when. Um, because again, biologically speaking, these all could just be phenomena of our human experience, biologically speaking, and there may not be such a thing as this divine feminine energy even though I do believe that there is this, the divine masculine and the divine feminine are very real, symbolically speaking. I think that helps a lot of us um, understand the nature of who we are as individuals, you know, how we both have masculine and feminine traits and how important it is to kind of recognize the, sim the symbolism of what that is. And, you know, so that stuff's very real. But this idea of a snake coiled up and then rising up your mind can do that i can tell you for the rest of the day go sit and meditate and focus on the base of your spine and imagine keyword imagine as you're breathing up and down in and out imagine that energy going up and down your spine and then think about the beautiful divine heavenly places you would go if you finally 
have that kundalini rise to the top of your head. And if I tell you to focus on the top, tippy top of your head, focus your mind there, right? That's what they tell people. You'll feel the vibration. Your mind will do it. And then with your eyes closed, you can visualize heaven. You can visualize traveling around the cosmos, floating through nebulas and stars and solar systems and galaxies. You'll be creating a dream in your head. And then maybe you'll remember your guru and teacher telling you, and then you will feel an overwhelming flood of love and bliss and oneness, all generated from your psychology all generated, mixed with the happy chemicals blasting through your brain, through your body, your nervous system doing things that maybe you've never experienced before. So yeah, guys, that's all I have for you. I need to find a way to end this episode. I feel like I can just continue to ramble and stuff. I do have more notes. And um, for anyone who did stay at the end, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. You know, consider becoming a Patreon and supporting this um, podcast. You know, the support over time will be really, really amazing and useful. You know, for me to keep my efforts sustaining the way I would like to. Please let me know what you think in the comments if you are on YouTube. Is there anything else I would like to say? Hmm. You know, I did have something I wanted to say and I forgot it and I'm not going to sit here like an idiot and uh, just, you know, keep you hanging on when the episode's really over now. So anyway, guys, that's all I have for you. Um, But again, if you are one, yeah, if you are listening to this, just be aware this episode has been available on Patreon for five, six, seven days already. So, and if you go to Patreon right now, you can already see all of the episodes that will eventually drop here on YouTube and on the streaming services, but they're already up on Patreon. So if you're super into what I'm doing, or if you are, you know, um, again, it may be, if you're, if you really enjoy what's going on here <laughs> and you want to just get a head start on seeing all the episodes that will be coming, becoming a Patreon is the only way to do that. That being said, this episode is over. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time.